Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. For anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they are a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. And if you want to learn more about them and have an in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. So we're here today to talk about the television show, The Queen's Gambit, and what kind of workflows and or collaborations are happening on a job of this caliber today versus where we want to get to in the future, as well as how much of this work is planned out ahead of time versus how much is figured out in post. I have to assume that everyone knows what this show is, but for those that don't, The Queen's Gambit had a record setting 62 million households watch this show in its first 28 days after release on Netflix. Also, another fun fact is Chess.com has added over 3.25 million new players to their system since this show's release. And looking at previous stats versus the new players joining the site has seen an uptick in 15% for female registrants, which is pretty awesome. Here with us today to get into some of the behind the scenes work on this job is VFX supervisor John Manja and the founder of Chicken Bone, who was the main VFX vendor on this job, John Renzulli. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. Great to be here. Great to have you guys. So a little background on John for our listeners out there. Now, I, I guess I'll say John Manja. <laughs> he is a VFX supervisor, having worked on a ton of awesome jobs like The Amazing Spider-Man, The Society, Blind Spot, Dreamland, and many more, which of course includes Queen's Gambit. And again, we have John Ranzulli here, who is the founder of Chicken Bone Post, as well as an executive VFX producer at Chicken Bone, having worked on some really awesome jobs like Fear of the Walking Dead, Westworld, Legion, Krypton, Legends of Tomorrow, and many more. And again, Queen's Gambit. But before I think we get started, considering you guys are both named John, how should I address you guys? Yeah, I, I, I go by John. And I, John Ranzulli, will go by Johnny. Okay. Okay, <laughs> now that we've got that Perfect. straight. <laughs> so, like I previously mentioned, one of the things that I thought would be really cool to reveal and get into in this episode is just how much of the VFX work we see on screen was planned out versus how much of it was realized necessary in post. So I guess a good place to really kick off the conversation then would be just how early for John, are you hired on a job like this? And what kind of work goes into prep? As an example, are you reading through a script and looking at storyboards to get a feel for what specific shots are going to require VFX work and then breaking down a budget? Or how, how does that work when you first get onboarded? Yeah, so, so a VFX supervisor can come onto a job several months before shooting. Um, I think in the case of The Queen's Gambit, I was contacted by Chicken Bone probably about a month or two before prep really started. And from there, you know, what, what we really did was we, we kind of started going through the scripts, trying to understand the story, having conversations and meetings with Scott and some of the other producers on the project. Sorry, Scott Frank, I should say his full name so everybody knows. And, you know, we really started doing what, what we call like a preliminary bid, where we sort of go line by line in the script and try to figure out any possible VFX need the show may have. And from there, we started receiving storyboards for some of the major chess sequences, which helped inform the bidding process and helped us sort of hone in on how many shots there might be and what is the camera doing during some of these shots, things like that. That's kind of like the beginning stages of a project in the scope of the Queen's Gambit. I see. And in terms of the camera movements being detailed for you, how does that information get conveyed to you? Are those broken down on paper beforehand, or how exactly is that laid out? Right. So the storyboards typically will have, you know, they'll show some sort of progression in terms of the framing of the shot. Sometimes there's arrows that are either moving into the frame or out of the frame or swirling around in, in, in some instances. 
It may illustrate a dolly or a zoom, you know, depending how the storyboards are drawn. And every major sequence in the show where we see the chess pieces was actually storyboarded. And it actually helped us <laughs> tremendously in terms of having conversations about what would be shot and how we would shoot that. It really helped us, especially in episode 101, it helped us really determine whether or not to have set construction build a ceiling to the dormitory. So we, we determined that we would actually create the entire ceiling of that room in VFX. And it also helped the cinematographer, Steven Meisler, have a little bit more flexibility there in terms of lighting that space. That's interesting. I, I, yeah, I can definitely see the benefit of having the flexibility of not having a ceiling in the way, so to speak, on <laughs> set. But when you guys get into your work, I guess, I guess I just would have assumed maybe it was a white ceiling or maybe even green in some moments. But in all of those scenes then where you see the chessboard on the ceiling, there was never a ceiling there? In the dormitory in episode 101, there was never a ceiling in that room. Yeah, so, hmm. so that entire ceiling is all us because... You know, we, we figured, you know, we, we were going to have to put all kinds of imagery up there anyway. Tree branches forming into chessboards, chessboards having pieces grow from them. And in the rest of the photography, outside of those sequences, the ceiling height is so high that you never really saw the ceiling, except maybe in a, in a handful of shots. So, yeah, we, we figured we might as well just do the entire thing in VFX. I see. Yeah. And then so as a VFX supervisor, you're also a representative of Chickenbone, so to speak, right? So Johnny, were you and your team involved in these conversations right out of the gate as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the concept work, even before we chose a VFX supervisor, a lot of the concept work, like trying to get Scott Frank's ideas and turn them into visuals, was something that we were very heavily in on from the beginning. I see. We weren't necessarily talking about camera moves or you know, the details of how a particular effect would be done, but something a lot more preliminary, a lot more basic, and trying to understand the project in a way so we can choose the right supervisor for the job. Ultimately, John was selected for the project because of his technical expertise and his brilliance as a compositor and a VFX supervisor from his previous work. And so when we were concepting um, the ideas, we started to understand the complexity of, of how it would break down and how much creative interpretation there would be. And so although our concepts were very, very basic at the beginning, it helped us really understand how to put a team around the project. And yes, that sometimes that's done with a supervisor in the room and other times it's done before a supervisor is chosen for the project. Interesting. Yeah, I just got off another call, a workflow call actually just today where there was a lot of talk about the fact that the show was finishing in HD, but yet we're turning over plates that were shot on a Red Monstro that are massive. <laughs> and should we actually be finishing the show in UHD knowing that it's future proofed? And then sure, when we deliver the show, we, we scale it down to HD. But I'm just curious because that has such a budgetary impact on things. Was that part of the initial conversations as well, or is that something you figure out a little later versus, you know, months before the job shoots? Yeah, it's, it's something that we absolutely take into account when bidding. We always want to know what the final output format is because obviously the, the technical requirements of pushing 4K through the VFX pipeline is significantly more than, you know, just HD or, or 2.5 or 3K. So yeah, absolutely, it has an impact. And, you know, in the case of the Queen's Gambit, we actually shot on the 8K Monstro with the VistaVision sensor. Hmm. So in post, I think we finished 4K, but due to the technical issues around things like lens distortion, we actually mm -hmm. worked 4.5K in VFX, which was challenging to say the least because it's you know most facilities these days are equipped uh, to deal with 4k workflows but four and a half k pushes it just a little bit outside the comfort zone you know gotcha well something that i think would be fun is to break down some shots and really going back to again this notion of how much was planned for versus how much did you figure out in post vfx so I know for all the listeners out there, you don't have video 
or pitcher in any way. But there's a couple shots I thought to bring up that are actually on Chicken Bone's site. They have a demo reel specifically made from the Queen's Gambit that uh, has these shots in it. So there's an opening scene where we were introduced to the orphanage. It was a shot in what looked like a summer day, but you needed it to look like it was in the middle of winter. So I'm just curious in this scenario, what kind of preparation went into planning this versus, again, what you figured out later that you just can't predict. You Obviously, you can't predict every little thing going into production. But yeah, I'm going to pull the shot up, actually, while you guys talk about it. Sure. Yeah. So, so the brief for that shot was that we wanted, Scott Frank wanted basically a beautiful winter snowy day, snow on the lawn, snow falling. And in addition to that, the actual like mansion that we we shot the the location the house was quite beat up it didn't have shingles on it there were a lot of stains and things that looked a little bit uh neglected and you know hmm. yeah it looks great right. in here. like it's yeah, so, brand new. so we had to we had to do a little bit of like a, a restoration on that orphanage on a number of other hmm. shots but on the shot with the snow we had to of course add all the snow and things like that so, you know, the, the early conversations that we had just when we were tech scouting was, you know, what, what the kind of camera movement would be, how much of the environment we would see, how wide the lensing might be, which, you know, those things can always change a little bit on the day. But, but um, Scott and Stephen had a pretty good idea of what, what we were going to see going into that shot. From there, in terms of prep, it was a lot of like gathering data, gathering measurements as much as we could to help understand the scale of the scene, to understand the measurements of the brick wall in the foreground that we would have to add snow to, and also the measurements of the building itself. In addition to that, I captured a series of photos to do what's called a photo scan, where we use mm -hmm. a bunch of different images and special software to essentially kind of figure out what the shape of an object is based on multiple still photos. So that was helpful in terms of aiding the, the modelers and match movers to understand the size of the space and the relationship between various objects in that space. Is photogrammetry the word that would represent what you're talking yes. about? Yeah, it's, it's totally really, it's like a similar to photogrammetry, but like a slightly different way of going about it. I see. And in this, I'm looking at trees on the left, and they've just been completely replaced. Like, did you just completely replace that and put in a CG tree, or did you keep the original tree, somehow take the leaves off of it and add the snow? It's Right. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So, so part of what we had to do for that shot, because there were still leaves on the trees, we had to paint out those leaves wherever they crossed over parts of the frame that we were keeping, and... Beyond that, replacing the entirety of the tree on the left and the tree in the foreground with CG trees without any leaves on them and also adding snow to those trees. Huh. And for the, um, I'm just curious for the 3D side of that, what application was used? Was that Maya by chance or something else? So on that particular shot, there were actually a few different pieces of software used. For the matte painting component of the shot, mm -hmm. our lead matte painter used Photoshop. In terms of the layout of the scene, Maya was used. And then in terms of creating the 3D trees, we actually used an open source piece of 3D software called Blender and a plugin for that called The Grove. Hmm. And that piece of software generates trees. That's just what it does? It just makes trees? It's a specific plugin for Blender that just makes trees. Huh. It will make all, all kinds of, you could tell it how old you want the tree to be and it will make you a tree. <laughs> and, you know, obviously there's a little bit of art directing and it's kind of cool because you can select certain branches and kind of prune them out and trim the tree, so to speak. Wow. And then beyond that, <laughs> there was snow created in Houdini on one of the trees and Basically, all, all the 3D trees were rendered out later on. Hmm. Yeah, and then, and then the entire shot was composited using Nuke and various 3D projections within Nuke. I see. And this, the tree that's on the right behind the gate, considering that gate is practical, I guess you had to roto that frame by frame yes. to make sure that you keep that gate in front of the fake tree. Yes, that's right. I see. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and in terms of the actual snowfall that's within the shot, what would have generated that? Right. So, so in terms of the snow, we actually used multiple layers of stock footage snow that were layered in 3D space to make sure that when the camera moves, you actually kind of see the snow parallaxing against other snowflakes and that the size of the snow as it 
recedes into into depth, the snowflake particles become smaller. So yeah, all all of that snow was for the most part it was pretty much all uh, stock footage. Wow. In, in in situations like that, do you guys have like a library that you default to when you need that or fire or any kind of element? Is that a library that you guys would have? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Chicken Bone actually has a, a really great library of footage for things like that. Blood, which we didn't really have to do too much of in the Queen's Gambit except for maybe one shot. But yeah, th- common sorts of things like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very typical to have a, a library. In most cases, we try to rely on it as a first source because it's easier to use something that's already existing as opposed to simulating something which can be actually quite a few days of work. Yeah. Which, which does happen from time to time, but it's really in situations where there's a need to art direct something or to have something move in a very specific choreographed way is typically when we'll, we'll do that sort of thing. I see. And in, ter- in terms of anyone providing creative feedback from the show, any of the producers that are on it, they knew the direction from an art direction standpoint that you were going, I assume, with adding that CG tree on both the left and the right. I assume that wasn't something that you guys would whip up and say, hey, what do you think? I assume you went in knowing that this is exactly where these objects are going to be. So actually, that particular shot and a lot of our really big, you know, sort of establisher shots seen throughout the show, the way we sort of approached that stuff so that we didn't just jump in and, you know, burn a bunch of money creating something that (laughs) Scott Frank may or may not like later, our matte painters sort of, we we sort of developed... um, sort of like a still, like a concept still that was, you know, still a little rough around the edges, but we could send it to Scott and, you know, look at it together and say like, hey, is this is this kind of what you're thinking for this? Is this sort of what we want to see here? You know, how does this amount of snow feel? Do we want it to be more or less? You know, questions like that. And we can have that kind of conversation before we spend too much money getting really into the weeds on the shot. Yeah, it's interesting because There were VFX reviews that I sat in a long while back, which was uh, for the movie Warcraft. You know, I was overseeing a lot of the workflow from camera through finishing, and it was interesting to me seeing ILM sometimes on shots. They'd be like, oh, we added this thing over here. What do you think? During the review, and (laughs) I guess I just was curious how common that is versus just creating what was told to them, (laughs) you know? We try to kind of build off of the creative brief we won't only put in what was asked for. You know, we try to deliver above and beyond. Yeah. You know, that, that's always the goal is to exceed the expectations, not just to, to meet them, you know. And based on things like research or wh- whatever a shop particularly calls for, we will add in as much love and detail as we possibly can because we want, of course, to make the shots beautiful. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's another shot in here that I was going to call out, which was of Vegas. So there's a scene where, I'm just going to play it here in your reel, where the camera pans over and the lead actress walks in, and it looks like a lot of that was created in CG. I'm just curious to hear any stories from the creation of this and how much was practical versus what wasn't, and also what kind of surprises this kind of a shot brought you. So in terms of Las Vegas, we had two Las Vegas shots. We have this one shot that's sort of an aerial establishing shot. And then the shot that you're referring to where we're actually on the ground with Beth as she enters the frame and and then ends up in this sort of two minute long oneer all on a Steadicam, which was kind of unbelievable that the Steadicam operator was... It was amazing. ...was able to do so many takes of that. It was really impressive to see, to be honest. <laughs> so in terms of that shot, a lot of research went into that. You know, first off, it was kind of taking a look at the time of day that it was shot at, which in real life was probably about 10 or 11 a.m. in Berlin. And we sort of looked at it and we said, okay, so this either has to be earlier in the day or later in the day. And depending what angle we want to see of Las Vegas in the background, what do we see, what do we see more of here? You know, which way should we be looking? And we looked at a bunch of old maps and things. I guess you'd have to look and see what was actually standing at that time. (laughs) Yeah. And and not just that, but in order to be historically accurate, we also had to figure out where to place the Mariposa Hotel, which is actually a fictional hotel in the story 
and we had to sort of examine, like, okay, well, there's sort of an empty lot over here, which it could kind of sit in, and maybe nobody would question it, and we would see a, a couple other hotels in the background, and from there, also figuring out what all these hotels looked like back then, which were there. Certain hotels, I think like Caesars Palace, were under construction at the time, so in, in those shots you'll actually see that they are it's partly built. <laughs> the, the other thing that we had to do as well, too, is we actually see the street. So we had a bunch of CG cars that all had to be period accurate as well, moving back and forth and, and driving around. So, yeah, there, there was, you know, plenty, plenty that went into that. Some of it's 3D and some of it is actually two and a half D map painting projections for the shot on the ground. Wow, and and the and the the background is so big. It's not like you would ever even throw green up or anything. Everything that needed to be done to blend in with the foreground practical elements was just come together. Yeah, it's amazing without being able to key it in any way. Yeah, I mean we had we did throw up some blue screen because you know it, on the day we ended up changing the camera movement a little bit because we were getting a lot of hard shadow light, hmm. which was uh, casting a shadow of the steady cam operator and the camera onto Beth. Originally, the shot was really meant to be following her into the hotel and seeing just a little bit of Las Vegas off to the right there. And sort of the way it worked out was it seemed less expensive to do a bit more roto than it would have been to paint out a steady cam shadow over Beth for hundreds and hundreds of frames leading into the shot, you know? Yeah. So we sort of called an audible on the day. I had a conversation with Scott and Steven and we said, well, if, you know, if we're going to spend the money on the shot, we might as well use that money to see more of Las Vegas than painting out a steady cam shadow, which nobody's going to see in the end anyway. Yeah, so I guess that isn't a, a great example of a heat of the moment chicken bones relying on you to <laughs> to make the right technical call in that moment, right? And and the show in general, I guess it's not even just a chicken bone thing. It's it's a huge impact on on what the shot is as well. Yeah, I I would say definitely that's the case. I mean, first we trust John, uh, you know, and and he's the right person for this job. And also it's important for a VFX supervisor for any type of show to be a little bit light on their feet and be able to adapt to a situation. So it's good to have some plans going into a shot, especially if it's a very complicated one and has a lot of technique that's required to accomplish it successfully. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, have a certain flexibility built into what you're doing. So when things change, you change with them. And I think John did that many times over the course of this show. Considering all the things, challenges that, John, you would have just had to have understood the ramifications of the decision for it, would you recommend that people have had to have worked in the hot seat as a compositor and doing all these various things themselves or else how otherwise, how would you have known the best course of action for that? Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say that my prior experience working as a compositor and as a compositing supervisor has been beneficial to my career as a VFX supervisor. Though, you know, there's a lot of VFX supervisors that come from various disciplines. There are some VFX supervisors that started out as camera operators or model makers or any, any other sort of trade. But I think that as a compositor, you're always dealing with fixing problems that kind of happened and you're always kind of the last in line and always sort of left to, to just sort of figure it out and make it look great. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and also, you know, you end up developing sort of a, a really good understanding of all the pieces and things that go into a shot and yeah. sort of how long certain kinds of things take. And, and you're always dealing with receiving elements from so many other departments. So you end up really having a good understanding of how to work with different departments and how to, one, get, give them the information they need and, and feedback th that they need, and also receiving things from other departments and, and using that in a shot. It's kind of twofold in that way. Yeah, I guess in the scenario of the shadow, you would have been weighing out, like you said, okay, how much work is this going to take versus... And I guess you'd go to the director at that point to say, you know what, if we actually just followed behind her a little bit and changed the shot, it's going to make a big impact on the budget is we have to work with? 
Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's it's all about working with a director and a, and a cinematographer and and you know, also the production designer. You know, depending on the what, what the situation is on set, mm-hmm. working to find a fantastic creative solution that benefits the show and the story and all the sort of stakeholders involved there. You know. Sometimes it's a bit of like a pick your battles kind of situation where, you know, like sometimes VFX just has to fix things, you know, and that's sort of how it is. And, and there were certainly shots throughout the show that we just kind of had to fix a couple things here and there because of certain kind of constraints, whether it's time or other resources, whatever it is. But in most cases, you know, we try to find like a, re- a really good solution that benefits everybody. For sure. Well, let's talk about one more scenario, one more specific scene that I thought was pretty impressive that, again, for anyone listening, is also on Chicken Bones Reel. So I think it might have been episode six, but the camera seems like it dollies back out from a window, from a room where a chess game is being played as Beth had previously left the room. The camera sweeps around the exterior of the building, passing a few windows that actually revealed people in the rooms to eventually landing on Beth's room just as she enters. And from a lot of different standpoints, I just thought this shot was incredible, and I'd be curious as to just how much work went into planning it out, considering how many elements there were to make that shot work. So that shot in particular, what's sort of interesting about it is that the first room that you see is actually a real room that has been dressed, of course, for the show. And that was in, uh, I think, an old, uh, sort of an older government building in Berlin. And the subsequent shots are actually a constructed set that was built within another sort of building. So the wall that you see in the background there and, and also on the side, those are actually set walls. Mm-hmm. But the camera, when it leaves the first room, I'm watching it right now, Yes. and it does look like you can tell there was a practical camera, unless that curtain mm-hmm. and the window are CG as well, I suppose. But It's all, it's all, yeah. Oh, so it, that, that shot that we were looking at was actually just locked off of those people sitting there looking at the chessboard? No, so, so, so what we did was we actually set up a dolly and it was dollying from uh, camera left to camera right, and that happened in every single plate used in that shot. The pullout is actually 3D, and one of the things that we had to work out, we had a very limited amount of space on set, so for all of those shots, the dolly tracks were basically against the far wall where there were actually practical windows, and then we did sort of a camera takeover in 3D. The entire facade of the building was built 3D. The relief seen on the building was sculpted 3D based on some Russian art found online. Hmm. The curtains are all, again, 3D, but all textured with actual texture reference photography from the actual set. So we captured photos of the entirety of those sets down to the fabrics and materials used on various things like the curtains to be able to recreate them in 3D. And then from there, it was sort of a matter of building out projected interiors to move the camera past and eventually into Beth's window. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible. It seems like you've also, even when you look, because you're obviously looking through a pane of glass, it's, it's almost like you've added something to the actual video layer as well to make it seem like you're looking through glass. It's not just behind there. It's almost like it's been softened slightly. Exactly, yeah. You, you pull out through the glass and there's a little bit of, a little bit of treatment you know, to, to make it feel like it's behind glass. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really amazing. So once the, the 3D object of, of this building is created and exported out with, I assume, an alpha channel, and then this goes into Nuke, is Nuke the actual application that would put this video layer in behind the windows that would have been generated, obviously, in a different application? Yes. So before we really built all that out, what we did was we built out some very rough geometry that was based on measurements from the actual windows on the set so that the proportions were at least similar to the real windows because we do see the real windows in in reverse angles and such. So we sort of blocked it out first to get buy-off from Michelle Tesoro, the editor, and, and Scott to make sure that the timing and the layout felt right, that we had enough rooms, all these things before we built out this whole building because it would have been 
expensive again to change later. Yeah. So once that was all kind of rendered out, the projections and the 3D renders are all composited together within Nuke. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Agreed. And so you did touch a little bit on this, but with this being a period piece, I'm curious, is there anyone on point for breaking down what shots will require VFX work to ensure that modern day architecture or other things are corrected to reflect what they would have actually been like in the era that you're recreating? As an example, I think, in, again, on the chicken bone demo reel, I saw a shot where there were fire escape stairs on a building in your final work, but they weren't in the original shot. And I assume this is a situation where people thought this is what would have been on this building back in this time, but there's got to be a ton of places all over the show where you had to emulate what the world was like back then. But is that just on you guys or is there someone else from production that is a part of that? Sort of a two-parter here, but I, I guess like in terms of the fire escape stairs, that was actually something that we decided in VFX later on to add to the shot. It wasn't something that anyone particularly asked for. That sort of goes goes back to kind of what we were talking about before, oh, yeah. where it's sort of like, you know, do, do you guys ever just add things that people don't ask for? And in the case of something that's not terribly expensive to add, this was one of those things because the creative goal for that shot where Benny's bug pulls up to his apartment building in New York was to make the shot really feel like New York. So we kind of took over above the second floor of that building and removed a whole bunch of Toronto that was in the background. Oh, of course. <laughs> we also had to, again, kind of going back to something we kind of touched on, painted out this giant modern steel lamppost, which there was just like no good solve for. It's like, well, it, it was just too big to be practically removed and we just had to paint the darn thing out, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you know, we, we saw the shot, you know, once we added the map painting in and all the other elements were there, we kind of looked at the shot, we're like, still doesn't really read like New York, you know? And we really wanted it to yeah. feel like New York without even questioning it. Yeah, I feel like the stairs though, when you, when you see a ton of fire escapes like that, it just screams Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it, it totally feels like, you know, the East Village or Brooklyn or, or some, some place within the five boroughs, you know, where, where mm -hmm. there's sort of multi-level apartment buildings like that. Yeah. That detail was, I, I think, what helped kind of sell that shot, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah, so, so in terms of like, you know, period show, we work a lot with the production designer of the show. You know, we, we have a lot of conversations with not only Scott Frank, but also the, the production designer who, in terms of the Queen's Gambit, was fellow named Uli Hanisch, who's actually from Berlin. And we would look at the various locations during tech scouting and sort of figure out like where, where we want to draw the line, you know, where can we physically dress or accept that this is the location that it has to be. And where beyond that do we say, okay, well, that looks way too modern or that totally doesn't look like Paris or Mexico City or wherever else, you know. And then from there, we kind of budget what that will cost to take that over and transform it into the desired place. I see. And some of that must be realized later, right? Because you couldn't go to every single location physically before they shot. So there must be some... Well, I assume you couldn't. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was actually out there during... And by you, I mean you, not, you know, other people scouting. Yeah. So I think that they, they did some initial location scouts, but by the time I got to Berlin, you know, before prep, we had the opportunity to actually tech scout several locations and sort of vet them and say like, okay, budgetarily, this is going to work and we can totally pull this off. No problem. And my presence there was to help that process along and, and reassure everybody that this is totally going to work later on. Mm -hmm. We don't really hammer out every single little detail of it, like exactly what we're going to see in most cases. But we have a pretty good idea of what it will be so that mm -hmm. we can budget appropriately. For example, like the exterior of the shops in Paris, when Beth's walking down the street, we kind of knew that we would have to take over these very kind of German looking buildings in the back, but we didn't know the exact details of what exactly it would look like. Mm -hmm. However, there were other shots, for example, like the pool uh, and the hotel in Mexico City that are actually based very, very closely on concept art that was created by Uli's art department. 
So we had a very good reference for that, and it was our goal in VFX to match as closely and be as deeply connected with production design as we possibly could so that we could achieve a very seamless sort of aesthetic to the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I have to agree with John on that. That is like one of the quintessential things we think just like philosophically that is really important to have present in in any collaboration. I think our efforts as a company certainly are that and to find people that can do it well like John. The best collaborations, the ones that are the most memorable, the ones that are the most effective, the, the ones that are play out best on the screen are the ones where all the departments are working together and communicating in a way that everyone can understand and everyone can you know adapt and even play off each other and find more creative solutions in the moment or after the fact at every stage of the uh, of the development of a project whereas sometimes it's kind of departmentalized uh, it can be, yeah. I mean, especially on really big productions, I think things tend to be segmented a little bit more and it can take a lot more effort to work them all back together. Um, but I think the underlying thread is that they all must work together, you know, and I think the most visually and emotionally successful projects are the ones that have that level of integration and that native ability to communicate and to collaborate and that desire to even learn as you're going Mm -hmm. and seeing what we can all do to work together to make it the best it can be. You know, this is a great example of how that happens. John just talking through all the little nuances of like, oh, well, you know, the, the art department did the concept art, but then we drew some lines when we were in a tech scout. And then in post, we did this and this and this and added these fire escapes and took this thing out. And then You know, that's kind of the beauty of how it all comes together. It's just like this organic and kind of revolving door of collaboration that allows whole teams, holistic filmmaking teams to be successful in the final frame that you see in in even the things that you hear to go along with that frame to make them all that much more poignant and, you know, in the moment. Yeah, and I assume the DP was right there in the middle of it, considering how amazing this this whole thing worked from a, a cinematography standpoint, along with the art direction, and it just, it really showed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there was a lot of just very tight collaboration with myself and Stephen Meisler and Uli and, and of course, Scott, even the producers on the show. Uh, everybody really brought something unique to the table, and it was really just this, this sort of combination of of ideas and working together to create the show. To be honest, it was fantastic sort of being involved early mm-hmm. because some, sometimes, you know, VFX doesn't get involved till post, you know, the, the, on certain shows. You know, obviously the, the more complex a show's needs, the more of a requirement there is for a VFX supervisor to be on the show every single day. And I was fortunate to be able to be there for the other creative folks on the show and to be able to ease their minds when it came to tricky VFX stuff or to be there to answer a question as it came up and be able to help plan how certain kind of things would, would uh, transpire, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, it's not, it's not always like the case of like having this picture perfect idea. In most cases, honestly, it's more of being there to absorb all of the ideas and information that is sort of coming up as the show evolves creatively during shooting really understanding what Scott has in mind for different shots and being able to ask him on a day when he's actually shooting a shot, is this what you want to see back here? Is this sort of the right aesthetic, you know, so I can start jotting down notes and being able to provide the VFX team with those notes in post so we can get something that's a pretty good result straight out the gate before we have any creative feedback, you know? Yeah. Because it's always better to be in sort of the ballpark of what a director is looking for than to be completely off base. Yeah, and then when you do turn over that version zero, are you using CineSync or Frame.io or any kind of a collaborative tool considering everyone's working remotely right now? So initially, you know, when we actually started post in January, we actually were doing in-person reviews down at Light Iron in Soho in Manhattan. And that was great. There's nothing better than being able to sit down in the edit suite with everybody and look at things and discuss what's working in a shop, what we need to revise, what could make a shop better. But 
once we had to kind of remove remotely due to the due to the pandemic, we ended up shifting reviews to Evercast because it was something that Scott and Michelle were using earlier on when we were shooting in Berlin to kind of put the assemblies together. So Evercast just seemed to be like a very easy go-to. Mm-hmm. Would it have been better to use CineSync? Probably. But I think when we were sort of just in the heat of it and had so much to get through, it just seemed like a, a big jump and a lot of extra work that would be required to kind of set that up. Yeah. And you had to react pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic yeah. tool. It's just like... it. Mm-hmm. There was just so much going on and edit deadlines to hit and uh, a lot of the creative process of creating the the chess visions and things like that. We just didn't want to slow that process down. So we we stuck with Evercast and it it seemed to work out for everybody. That's good. Yeah. And Johnny, a question for you would be in that regard, the artists and their workstations, were they, because the pandemic hadn't hit when you started this work, were they working locally and then having to switch to con- accessing remote computers or have they been using remote computers for a while now? Chickenbone is a virtual workforce by nature. Mm. We're built and you know conceived <laughs> as, as the idea of being a virtual workforce. And although how we do that has changed a lot over the years, in March of this year when the pandemic hit, we do have some labor force that w- were working in an office at the time. It wasn't the artists, it was just the management crew, the crew that was managing the show, like John and Riss and coordinators and IO and such. But they were already working on virtual workstations from the office. So we just sent them home to work instead. So there really wasn't a big change for us from a technological perspective. There are other challenges that the pandemic brought in, you know, the socioeconomic morale building, keeping everyone on the same page. There's this whole new level of stress in everyone's life. And mm-hmm. our team did an amazing job of doing that. Not only did John and his team manage the artists well during that period of time, I think everyone was just appreciative that they could keep working, that there was a way for them to keep working. And, you know, we did a lot of extra things during that period of time to keep everybody's, you know, emotional life a little bit better because basically work was, it's like, you know, work and you're working from home and everybody's at home. And so we gave them some social outlets now and then to try to take the burden off. And John and Riss in particular were really, really good at checking the temperature of of the crew during that period of time, making sure that they were all right, you know, giving them outlets and Um, You know, even shifting workloads as we saw things come up, people's personal lives and providing breaks and providing paid time off and in very specific situations. I think those are the kind of things we were navigating like Mm -hmm. everyone else was. But I think our focus was more on that because we were a little less concerned about how we're going to make this technological transition in a hurry. Makes sense. Yeah, basically, you know, one of the challenges of the show was not so much the remote working because it's something that I've I've sort of done in the past where I've had to supervise remote crews or work with remote artists and things like that. The challenge really was like how can we support our fantastic team and keep them as focused as possible on all of the over 700 shots that we had to get done and also allow them to feel supported were there for them and you know that we have the ability to reshuffle shots or allocate things differently to to make sure that everybody's mental health didn't suffer Mm -hmm. at the same time i feel like the project also provided a lot of our artists sort of an outlet you know everyone had like this this fantastic creative outlet absolutely that they could focus on and sort of black out what was going on in the world because they could work in the world of the (laughs) queen's gambit which is such a beautiful world to be in you know the of the 1950s and 1960s you know and to be honest i kind of found myself doing the same where obviously you know we were quarantined here in new york and you can't go outside and i was just like well I don't really know when I'm going to be on another show, so I might as well just put time in and make this one as fantastic as it can be. Mm-hmm. I try not to do it too much, but there were definitely times that, you know, I would just wake up on Saturday. It's like, okay, well, there's nothing to do. It's raining outside. I can't even go for a socially distanced walk if I wanted to. Guess I'll hop into 636.20 or whatever shot number and like, <laughs> like take a peek at how we can make this shot better, you know? That sounds familiar. 
Yeah. <laughs> so sort of like this just creative outlet that everybody sort of had. And again, you know, like our team really just was stellar. You know, everybody really brought so much love into it. and Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. And everyone really just cared so much about what we were creating. And it's funny, too, because... Even on set and in pre-production, everybody cared so much about what we were making. Yeah, it makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the grips on set, everybody cared about what we were making, you know? And not every show's like that. You know, I've worked on other shows in the past, and sometimes to some folks, it's kind of just a a job. Mm -hmm. And this one wasn't like that. You know, I I feel like everybody who knew a little bit about it going in and understood how kind of special the story was. I mean, certainly nobody expected chess sets to be selling out at every store in the country or whatever, you know. (laughs) But everyone knew that we were making something that that hopefully people would appreciate. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, switching gears, a little bit more of the technical stuff. From the angle of metadata, I'd be curious as to what was being captured on set and or what was being turned over with your VFX pulls and how you were able to utilize that. You know, I feel like a lot of this information that is captured is not standardized, and I've always just been curious as to how practical it is to actually access and or utilize any of this information, like as an example, lens metadata or any information from the camera in general, or I guess, you know, VFX data wrangler notes, things like this. There was actually a variety of different data captured on set. One of the things that was really key was in the the girls' dormitory at the orphanage, that set, which was actually built on the interior of a gymnasium in Berlin, we had LiDAR captured for that entire set because we knew that we were going to have some very tricky camera match moves in that environment, as well as the need in some shots to actually build virtual camera moves off of Steven Meisler's camera moves. So we actually extended camera moves to to create virtual moves in in a few shots. Hmm. And the LiDAR was really important for that because sometimes we were seeing virtual room in those shots as well, you know, in addition to obviously CG ceiling. So that was a a key component. We wanted to LiDAR a couple other environments, but budgetarily it it didn't really make sense. We found other creative solutions to that that ended up working out. But Every set we would get detailed measurements for, something that I kind of never saw in my life until really doing a job in in Germany, was (laughs) all the plans, the schematics for the set diagrams and Mm -hmm. stuff. I looked at it in the beginning, I was like, why are all these numbers so big? I was like, well, these aren't in feet and these aren't in inches because if if they were in inches, it would be gigantic. They were measuring the set in millimeters. What? And <laughs> yeah, it's very down precise. to the millimeter. <laughs> like yeah, like you're building a Mercedes Benz or something. Yeah, it was <laughs> unbelievable. I never saw anything like it. Yeah, it was fantastic. And you know, as somebody that relies on having accurate data in post, it's it's really very very helpful to have detailed set diagrams like that. Additionally, I, t- I took my own measurements, of course, just to to double down on things. But um, yeah, I mean that that was huge. I personally use a piece of software called Satellite, which is like a, a VFX like data capture app for the iPad. Satellite? Satellite, yeah, like okay. S-E-T-E-L-L-I-T-E. Yeah, I've been using it for years. It's just fantastic. The interface takes a bit to get used to, but I've found no better way of organizing data from set than that. Yeah, I agree. Well, you haven't either. Well, that's really nice to hear because honestly, it seems like it's all over the map as to how people are capturing this data on set. And, you know, I oversee a product where I aggregate metadata from all of these various sources. And one of the tricky things was I I was looking into building something that would be a note-taking application and you could take all of your set stills and and you could put that all together. But then the moment I started talking to anyone on set that captures this kind of data, one person was using FileMaker and they had put all these hours into creating their own custom FileMaker app and they didn't want to have to change. And then other people are using Excel and other people are using like it's it seemed all over the map. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't actually aware of an app like this. Quite a number of years ago, I looked into, you know, various FileMaker databases and things like that. And, and on all my shows thus far, I've kind of been my own data wrangler. Mm-hmm. So for me... 
I kind of need something that is easy and fast and not clunky because I don't know the, the file all the FileMaker database they, they always just felt clunky. Yeah. And when I'm needing to pay attention to what's happening and also chatting with a director and taking notes and wearing all these kind of hats simultaneously, I just need something that that gets the job done. And for whatever it is, fifteen dollars a month, satellite does it. <laughs> and I'm I'm not like sponsored by them. I just like really I just really like it. You know, we like it too. It's everything everything that we could have wanted uh, in some form or another. An easy way to track it. Yeah, it seems great. And there's even tools now that can help you move you know migrate it to different softwares more easily too. Very cool. Yeah, and then and then in terms of other information, I mean, we always capture lens grids on set to you know mm -hmm. map the lens distortion things like that. The very common, typical things. Have you have you seen Zeiss's new metadata for that? The extended data they're calling it. Yeah, so we actually shot with Zeiss Supreme Primes on the Queen's Gambit, and my mm -hmm. intent in the beginning was actually to extract the data, but. You know, we tried for quite a few weeks and it was a while. Yeah. When we were shooting, couldn't get it to work. Not sure what the what the reason was. To get it into the EXRs as an example or to actually get it to Yeah, to to get it into the EXRs. We we had a lot of back and forth with the lab or whatever and you know, just couldn't couldn't get it in. Yeah, I think give it time and, and it's just going to be standard that, you know, applications, whether it's daylight from Filmlight or Colorfront's application Transcoder or EXD or OSD, mm -hmm. pretty soon I think it's just going to be automatic that you can just choose to put it in the header of the files or not. Yeah, I mean, it would be tremendously helpful to have it in VFX. So helpful, yeah. We wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a great additional thing to have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, other, other data from set... What else did we have in in the dormitory environment? We also shot with a, a techno dolly for some shots, so we had data from the techno dolly as well. I see. And thousands of photographs. Thousands, thousands, <laughs> and thousands. Photographs of every every car, every location. You know, outside the Wheatley house, because the interior of the Wheatley house was built on the soundstage, and the exterior all takes place in Toronto. We had to create the exterior environment as seen from the inside. So that was built from plates of running footage that were stitched into huge 30,000K panoramas and also sometimes peppered in with photographs of vehicles and things. We wanted cars driving by outside so that that whole environment had a little bit more life to it. Hmm. Yeah, all sorts of things. You know, f photos are a huge asset later on. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, before we wrap out, I'm curious if there are any lessons learned from this whole experience that if you were to start over again, that you'd go in with a little bit of a different approach or something that you learned that you'd like to share. Um, you know, uh, we all kind of adapted together yeah. <laughs> during the course of this project, and we can use that as a target for uh, ideal collaboration in the future. You know, future projects, obviously, the goal would be to be involved as early in the process as possible, which I, I think Indeed. was a huge benefit to this one. Absolutely. The sort of early collaboration and even just the early concept test for the chess pieces and stuff that Chickenbone did, I think, was huge in helping everybody sort of understand what we were creating. I think if I could have done something maybe a little differently, maybe would have done a little bit more previs or a little bit more concept exploration or a little bit earlier on for the chess pieces. It could have made maybe the, the look development process maybe a little bit more efficient, but we still were able to create what Scott had in mind. I, I think if, if we had maybe just a little just a little bit more time to explore while shooting it might have got us there just a tad quicker or whatever yeah for sure all right well thank you both very much for joining us today i think that it's an incredible feather in your cap for pulling off what you did. This was an incredible show. Thank you very much, Jesse. We appreciate you having us. Thanks Thanks so much for having us, Jesse. It was really awesome. No problem. And for anyone that hasn't seen this yet, hopefully this was enough to inspire you to check it out. You definitely should. And also, check out Chickenbone. Their website is chickenbonefx.com. I think I don't really need to spell that out. You got it from here. But thank you very much for everyone tuning in. Your support is very much appreciated and stay tuned for the reveal of who our next guest will be on social media. Until next time, that's a wrap.